You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 434. Extreme Measures. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we link up to the old neural imager and poke around inside Star Trek, revealing the morals, meanings, and messages, and trying to determine if the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, a fantastic voyage inside the inner space of Sloane's brain, where a brainstorm means Bashir and O'Brien need to revert to extreme measures. That's it. That, that, that's the title part, Extreme Measures. I'm sorry, I was just embellishing. Brain? Brain? What is brain? And we'll take a trip into a place just as confusing and fraught with danger in a moment when John gives us this week's trivia. Meanwhile, here's how you can reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. Now, let's see here. Uh, controller forward, then controller back, then controller left, then controller right, and then... Enter John Champion with this week's trivia. That's how it works. That's how I do trivia every week. So here we go for Extreme Measures. This episode was written by David Weddle and Bradley Thompson. And here we are so close to the end of the run of DS9. And this marks their final contributions, DS9 and Star Trek overall. But don't worry, those writer connections run deep, and not too long after DS9, they found themselves working on Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica. This episode's directed by Steve Posey. Remember that Steve came over to DS9 with a resume that included other genre shows of the era, like Babylon 5, Space Above and Beyond, and Dark Skies. Here, he finishes up the fourth and final of his Star Trek directorial credits. Now, Anybody who listens to Mission Log or has a passing interest in TV history knows all about the Bottle Show, and this is a prime example. Falling very near the end of the season and in the middle of a long, expensive arc of shows, it became necessary to hone down the production in anticipation of the bigger budget needed for the end of the series. Therefore, we've cut what was one possible plotline, like... Section 31 being on a planet. 
We've also trimmed down most of the other characters here, too, which brings us to guest stars. What's notable here is who isn't in the episode. We spent a lot of time lately with the supporting guest characters, but there is no Dukat or Wen or Damar or Weyun. There was an early draft that had Weyun and the female changeling, but along with many other ideas, that was cut. We also noticeably don't have Quark, which is interesting because there are two scenes in his bar after hours. That's another scene that was cut, kind of a redux of Quark visiting Odo in the infirmary, trying to cheer him up in his Quark way. What we do have, though, is William Sadler back as Sloane. I hope I'm not giving it away by saying that this is his third and final appearance on DS9, and that is the total of Sadler's run on Star Trek. You already know him from so much more, though, and if you need a fix after this, go back and rewatch oh, Bill and Ted, or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., or Shawshank Redemption, or Roswell, or just so much more. Extreme measures. It's like Herman's head, without Herman. Actually, I'm going to get John to try to explain this to you. Prologue. In the infirmary on DS9, Odo is in terrible condition. The virus has ravaged his body as he flakes away. At his insistence, Dr. Bashir reveals that he has maybe a couple of weeks to live. Then Odo asks to see Kira one last time. They say a heartfelt, tragic goodbye as Odo insists that she return to help Damar, as he doesn't want the last thing he sees to be pain in her eyes. So Kira is off, with Garrick, to return to help the Cardassian Rebellion, but not before seeing Dr. Bashir one more time where he tells her he'll do everything he can. Captain Sisko asks the doctor if there's anything he can do, perhaps via help from Starfleet Medical, but Bashir says he's got everything he needs. Until Miles pipes up, they have uh, been investigating one more angle, the one that Section 31 created the virus and purposely infected Odo to wipe out all the changelings when they link. Sisko is shocked, dismayed, and a bit of a loss. Bashir says he and O'Brien didn't mention anything for very good reasons, like the Romulan neural probe he just happens to have and intends to use on whomever they capture from Section 31. Sisko says the whole thing is still probably a very bad idea. Act 1. It's very late. Neither O'Brien nor Bashir can sleep, which leads to some after-hours darts in a closed Quark's bar. Julian couldn't concentrate on his book, A Tale of Two Cities, because the thought of how deeply this conspiracy must go has been gnawing away at him. There must be dozens of people at Section 31 who are in on it. Still, their minds have to be on Odo. And as if like clockwork, when Julian retires for the night, who should show up at the foot of his bed but Sloane? Only this time Julian is ready and traps him in a containment field. Sloane is smugly unaware of why he's there until Julian reveals he doesn't actually have a cure for Odo. A stun blast from a phaser, and a minute later Sloane is in a new containment field in a makeshift science lab. He tries both to reason and bully his way out of it, but no use. 
Dr. Bashir explains calmly and rationally that he knows Sloan must know the cure because he came there specifically to destroy what he thought Julian had. So how will they get what they're after if Sloan won't talk? With the Romulan mind probe. And that's not just a drink at the experience. Sloan tries again to reason, but he can't. Julian can't have the cure because, in Sloan's estimation, it's too dangerous that the cure would fall into the hands of the founders. Sensing it's his last duty, Sloan then activates a neural depolarizer in his brain that will kill him and take his secrets with him. Act 2. Acting very quickly, Bashir is able to stabilize Sloan, even in his damaged state. He'll die soon, and the information dies with him too, unless... Bashir asks O'Brien to tech the tech like he's never teched it before. The result is a kind of VR, hollow game interactive brain link that will let Bashir walk around in Sloan's consciousness and experience... What? Well, he's not sure exactly, but he knows the answers he needs are in there, and he has just the failsafe to get himself out. Using his enhanced genetics to raise his blood pressure as a sign to the machine to wake him up. Worst case, if Sloan dies, it could take virtual and real Bashir with him. That's all well and good, but the chief insists on going along as an extra measure of protection. They both activate the neural links and find themselves in a facsimile of a DS9 turbolift, rising higher and higher and faster and faster. Act 3. The lift shakes and shudders, traveling at ludicrous speed. When it finally stops and the door opens, Bashir and O'Brien are greeted by... Sloan. Well, the part of his psyche that's there anyway, and this guy really wants to help them help Odo. When he starts to tell them the details of the cure, though, he gets all garbled like he spent too much time in the Red Room. He insists that he wants to help them, but something is stopping him until they can all go to the ward room together. In the ward room, Sloane makes a heartfelt speech, apologizing to the people he loves for the pain he has caused them. The assembled family, well, memories of Sloane's family, watch and listen and applaud, then lovingly forgive him. With that bit of catharsis complete, Sloane is ready to hand over a pad containing the medical data the doctor needs. But just as he does, the door slides open and there's uh, Sloane on the other side with a phaser who shoots and kills the more benevolent version of himself. He says he can't let them have the information, then he disappears down the corridor. Act 4. In the real world, Esri Dax and Captain Sisko walk in on the scene of the three unconscious men hooked up to machines and sharing each other's brains. They don't know exactly what's going on, but Sisko calls for some medical support just in case. On the inside of Sloane's noggin, O'Brien and Bashir continue to race the clock, now with the complication of a very uncooperative Sloane. A security guard shows up, creating another blockade to finding Sloan, and this guy isn't messing around. He fires his phaser at both, and the pain is very real, even if all of this is just mind games. Backed up against a bulkhead, in pain, Bashir tries to end the simulation and remove the two men from Sloan's mind. It doesn't work, though. Bashir and O'Brien are stuck, in pain, possibly dying in Sloan's mind. 
and as the minutes tick down, they both share a bit of personal insight. Miles didn't tell Keiko where he was going, mostly not to worry her or the kids, but also to avoid an argument about how he spends too much time with Dr. Bashir, which he admits he does. That leads Bashir to his own confession. He hasn't told Ezri how he feels about her, but he does like spending time with O'Brien, so there's that. Moments of awkwardness are spared by the appearance of a tunnel with a light at the end of it. Could it be the tunnel to the afterlife? Sure, they could walk toward it, but O'Brien isn't about to give up this easily. Even in their weakened states, he and the doctor get up, walk toward a door, and open it, and that brings them back into the real world again, out of their mental illusion, where they find Sloane is dead. Act 5. Bashir checks in on Odo, who is at death's door himself. It's exhausting and frustrating as Bashir realizes he can't have done more for either of them. Retiring to his room, he picks up the book he just started, A Tale of Two Cities, and starts reading. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and that's it. The same thing on every page, because that's all he can remember. He shows it to O'Brien, and they both understand. They're still in Sloane's mind. He's dying. The virtual situation they're in is shaking, and it's all because they must be getting closer to the answer. They return to the door that recently took them out and find this time that it opens, and there's Sloane, smug as ever, even if he's aware of his imminent demise. He taunts Bashir with the room full of stuff around him, information, schematics, pads, all the collected data to cripple Section 31, all there for Bashir's taking. O'Brien reminds him, they're there for a reason. As tempting as it is, they're there for Odo and have to get the data about his cure. As the station deteriorates around them, Bashir knows what he has to do. He's absorbed what he needs from the medical files, then wills his way back into the real world with O'Brien in tow. They awaken with the help of Sisko and Esri, who Bashir remarks looks beautiful. Sloane, for sure now, is dead. With the knowledge he needed, Bashir prepares a dose of the antiviral for Odo. It's painful, but it works, and Odo is back to himself. Late night again, time for darts and drinks in an empty corks bar. O'Brien pours a toast to them, to Odo. Then O'Brien asks, if they had the time, would Bashir have stayed around to gather the information about Section 31? He may have, but he needed his friend there at the time to steer them to their goal. Miles is off for dinner with Keiko and invites his best friend to come along. The End Hey, look, right at the top, we got to say a big tip of the hat to Mission Log listener Gregory for Sloan's Brain that we mentioned in the uh, intro. Nicely done, Gregory. That deserves a t-shirt, for sure. Yeah, (laughs) totally. And and Alan, you can't take that now either. (laughs) Oh, it might just happen. It might end up in the meme anyway. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Actually, no, I'll lift lift the uh, embargo on that. So, yeah. You lift the ban. Okay. Because, like, a good joke is a good joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I gotta say, you know, th- this is an interesting thing where I, I feel like in our journey with these characters on DS9, we may have felt at times like the Odo and Kira relationship was forced and not fully formed. And then I don't think we both really accepted how they got back together. That just, oh, we talked in a closet for 
you know, several hours. Now we're fine. But I will say this. They have had some great writing as of late. There was so much truth to that scene previously where um, Kira is telling Garrick, you know, this is that this is how it is. This is how I am honoring Odo uh, by letting him believe that I don't know this. And their goodbye in the infirmary was superb. Mm-hmm. It was a great moment. Uh, scenes like this are really difficult to watch if you've had to say goodbye to somebody, you know, a loved one, uh, especially at the bedside and or in their hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that I think as actors, either they've studied the scene or observed this or, or have endured something like this in their life because that scene was so real. It's even hard. to. Yeah. T- it's, it's very hard for me to talk about now because I went through something like yeah. that. Um, and it makes it all the more uh, earned. And mm-hmm. wherever their relationship is or, or how it moves forward from here, it's an earned relationship. And I, I'm, I'm glad that this was in the episode. Yeah, same. Uh, some things I'm not so glad about, though, in the episode. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, it's it's nice that 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 Julian and uh, and O'Brien are kind of talking to Cisco and talking about their plans, and then he said something about ethics and the Romulan memory scanner and Section Thirty One and legal and ethical <laughs> issues, and I'm like, yeah. Cisco, are we gonna are we going to talk about ethics when it comes to Romulans and mm-hmm. your ethics with Romulans? That's right, folks. We are never gonna let this go because Nor- clearly at this point, Cisco has just completely convinced himself mm-hmm. of the validity of his own actions. Yeah. yeah, I was not a fan of that interchange, uh, but at the same time, though, it's not like he's gonna say, "Well, this is what I did," so I understand what you're doing, well- right? Okay, you know what? Here's the thing. He's never going to say that, but but at any point, do they ever have a beer together at some point and go, you know, I've done things that I wasn't proud of? Mm-hmm. Like, could, could we just get that out of him, <laughs> you know, instead of the speech about ethics? Would be a great scene, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Best of times, worst of times, and even now, I can't help but associate that with uh, Wrath of Khan. Totally. I mean, <laughs> you yeah. know, I, 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 part of me was surprised that they used that. Part of me was not. Maybe now it's just part of the Trek fabric, mm-hmm. but, you know, that's fine. I would have liked Jillian to have turned to Miles and said, message, Miles? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none that I'm aware yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, playing uh, darts solo as a genetic superhuman, that's got to be really boring. Like, how do you beat... Yeah like perfect scores right like right. oh triple tens again you know oh yeah. of course you know, yeah, i don't know exactly <laughs> uh the whole thing with it's lucky that they know sloan so well and, and that sloan decided to sit again at the foot of julian's bed because if he didn't what would happen to their trap i know right like, exactly yeah i i mean it, it's a good thing that they clearly established that mm-hmm. over and over again in in the show you know but yeah if you just decided this time to not do that uh you wonder what would happen and, and man sloan with the whole uh everything okay at home i'd hate to see anything happen to them man he's just he's just being a gangster oh. now at this point i mean oof, yeah, yeah. Rough. And uh, yeah. I'll, I'll throw then Keiko's probably a gangster too because both of them completely ignore Chester the cat. Ooh. ooh so Keiko ooh, is gangster, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Too mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I love uh, Sloan on the examination table. You know, you expect me to talk? And I was like, no, Mr. Sloan, I expect you to die. That's what I wanted out of that scene. If that happened, but, it, 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 like you would have talked, it would have pecked me. Our phones would have blown up. And I know. we'd be doing that whole scene all over the place. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and also it would have kind of completely like just bookended Armand Bashir perfectly. Absolutely I know. Perfectly. Right, yeah. right, mm-hmm. right. I, I do love the ease with which uh, we kick off that montage when Dr. Bashir says, I need a multitronic enchromatic interpreter. That is such a beautifully executed piece of technobabble. I'm I'm honestly I'm tempted to email Mike Okuda and say, can I just get an Akutagram that says that so I can stick it on my VR rig? Mm-hmm. Like I think that that's the way to go now. So we that. should put that in like really nice, just sans serif font on a T-shirt, and then on the front, mm-hmm. and then on the back, say say ten times fast without mistake, one free drink. <laughs> right, right around there Las Vegas. That'll, that'll be a challenge. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, you know, there's there's stuff to unpack with Sloan, although it, it is kind of a weird thing to determine exactly what to unpack with this episode. Um, but the first Sloan that we meet in the simulation, and, and look, I understand that it is not a simulation in the respect that it's not a hollow suite, but look, just for clarity's sake, I'm going to call it that, so forgive me. That Sloan is intent on helping them. And I, I was wondering, is the script even trying at any point to say anything about what's going on in his psyche. Like, is there this part of him that is a really good guy and he's just overpowered by the part of himself that is uh, nefarious and, and driven by other motivations, you know, or are we just not supposed to think too hard about that? Well, the whole dinner apology thing. I'm like, why do we even care? Like who cares? Right. <laughs> I, I know. Like, okay. I so know. even if like the yeah. neural, the neural consciousness part of him is being honest, who cares? Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Sloan. He made his bed, lie in yeah. it. Why are we bothering to humanize him? Oh, and there's a whole like, thanks muffin. <laughs> Gross! Yeah. Like, oh god! I, I was like, Ugh. I thought I felt so bad for that poor woman. I was yeah. just like, oh, and, and see, and and now you're still never gonna know. And honestly, well, unless Julian shows up and tells you about, someone. I was doing something. I was listening to it on the side. I was gonna get back to it and rewind it. I honestly thought that his wife handed him a muffin, like, because <laughs> they were at a dinner party. I was like, oh, thanks, muffin. Yeah, I'm like, oh. and then I was like, gross. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, that. That's a strange scene, and, and I wondered if they really felt like, oh, we're doing something important here about humanizing him. But I don't. I, I think it's too little, too late. None of it's earned. And, and it none of it. so none of it's earned. It's not earned exactly. Yeah. It feels so incongruous. But you know, okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get to more of that later. Um, <laughs> Thanks, muffin. Okay, but here's the thing. Did neither O'Brien nor Bashir decide to take off their comm badges before going under into that simulation? Like, we're in a secret place, and we can't let anybody know what's going on, but the computer, literally anybody can find us because we're just laying here with our comm badges. I mean, the whole scene, like, sets up a really great bar joke. Okay, so Cisco and Esri walk into a bar and uh, stumble upon an unconscious threesome. (laughs) So... Right? I mean, that's a weird thing. Right? They're never going to live that down. Yeah, they're like, yeah. Cisco walks in. It's like, what the heck is going on here? But let me tell you something about ethics and integrity. Just, you know, while you're unconscious, right. I'm going to confess right. everything to you right now because you can't hear me anyway. Right? Uh, oh, that would be classic. Yeah. yeah. And, and, like, and of course, of course, 
Miles didn't tell Keiko anything, which then has to lead us to the true bromance confessions, which I'm sure we'll have something to say about later as well. Yeah, stay tuned. (laughs) Uh, I like the kind of like the Gibson Matrix type of if you get hurt in the Matrix or in the consciousness, that's real. Mm -hmm. And if you die in the consciousness, Mm -hmm. that's real. I like how they Mm -hmm. use that element of science fiction uh, as, as part of the reality in, you know, in the story. And that's I don't remember when The Matrix came out. I think it was 1999. So maybe it's kind of in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Gibson's Neuromancer came Oops. out in the early 80s, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, yeah, yeah. you know, when, when Cowboy jacked into the system, you know, neural net wise, he knew if he was going to die in the system, he dies in real life. So I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of smart. Um, maybe like me a bit more than your wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get into I, that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I do like it's not a big deal at all. In fact, it is such a tiny deal. But I, I, second or third time through watching this, I thought it, it was a very conventional use of this idea of the light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. um, and their discussion about, you know, it, it's sort of the next step it's the afterlife, whatever. Uh, that's fine we we haven't explored sort of the uh uh spiritual sides of miles or of uh dr bashir um and i guess from a purely scientific medical standpoint you know there, there's this idea that the brain sort of kicks into that uh when it's you know deprived of oxygen and toward the end a lot of people you know you kind of see this bright light mm-hmm. you know but um I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. This is sort of like the the low hanging fruit. It's like the, the easy thing to go to to telegraph to the audience. Like this is what you probably think. This is also what the characters are thinking. But obviously, it doesn't lead to a deeper discussion about anything on their part. It's just the symbolic thing. You Technically, know. wouldn't they be seeing what Sloane would be experiencing? Wouldn't it be? Oh, that's interesting. You know, wouldn't yeah. it be from Sloane's point yeah, of view yeah. since they're in Sloane's consciousness? So if he is about to expire, then that's what mm-hmm. Sloane's belief system would see. Could be. That's what I thought. Could very well. Be. I also thought yeah. that it's a light at the end of this episode, so that's also good. So, <laughs> right. I mean, I'm trying to be optimistic and, you know, realistic at the same time. Uh, Sure. I like the repeating passage of the best of times, worst of times in the bar because it was very, like, deja vu-ish, like in The Matrix. Like when the cat, Mm -hmm. you know, walked and then walked again in front of Neo. And he's like, hey, look at that, deja vu. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, it's also like me giving a book report on Dickens when I was in high school, too. (laughs) Uh, It's just, uh, oh, I remember this part, uh, mainly because they said it in The Wrath of Khan. And uh, don't ask me anything else. And then the teacher said, Mr. Spock is not in that dialogue <laughs> it's not i swear there was no spock in dickensian england mm-hmm. yet. <laughs> not at all i liked uh, bashir's bedside manner at the end i thought that was nice to kind of just alleviate a little bit of the of the tension of the episode i thought that was good that was mm-hmm. good yes yeah and and in that last scene odo's makeup wow i mean i i love that they commit to this progression of the virus that was pretty incredible i mean that that was a scary looking uh degradation of his body that we were seeing and, and yes the pain was well apparently very temporary you know this is gonna hurt and then it's just like oh, okay then there's a morph and he's okay <laughs> so all right good yeah i really like the end when they started drinking from a bottle of straight up real booze like real whiskey Mm-hmm. And I think that the original label on that bottle, John, I think it was, it was O'Brien liked it, so it must have been an Irish pot still whiskey. And if so, mm. logic yeah. would dictate that the label would have probably said writer's tears. 
It's good to find out who keeps Sloan company most of the time. His head is full of imaginary friends, who also happen to be himself. Promotional consideration on this episode of Mission Log is by ExpressVPN. Secure your online activity and get full access to the content on your favorite streaming services by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash mission log. We will get right back to extreme measures, but first, an extreme thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, all of you who have joined us over at patreon.com slash mission log, and furthermore have joined us in the mission log discord. Norm, how good is our discord? Oh, I think it's it's just, <laughs> I'd like to pat ourselves on the back and say it's one of the greatest things ever, you know, since sliced bread or Keiko's crab rolls, you know, but... <laughs> It's that good. It's that yeah. good. It's that yeah. good. Uh, we're so fortunate, and uh, we're so privileged to have so many great people um, have come and subscribed to Patreon to support us, and then have access to Discord and really grow the community, uh, really create a lot of great friendships and relationships, and sharing all of your fandom uh, enthusiasm, enthusiasm, you know, and uh, <laughs> all your love for all things Star Trek and everything in science fiction and food and random fandom. And it's just been, it's just been such a blessing, uh, for all of us, I think, uh, especially since we're still locked down and, and need find, uh, need to find ways to, to reach out and connect. Yeah, it's all about that continued conversation, you know. We get our say on the show, and then we get to dive into our Discord where we can have uh, sometimes serious, oftentimes just a lot of fun, kind of blowing off steam, talking about Trek or whatever else it is that you're into, and in a much more inviting community environment than a lot of what you find online. And that's not all. Our Patreon... You get exclusive early access to our shows. You get exclusive swag that is only for our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to uh, just say a special thank you to some of our most recent members. So Patrick, Matty, Brian, Rachel, Charlie, Catherine, Mary Virginia. Thank you all for joining us on Patreon. And we absolutely look forward to seeing you in the Discord as well. Yep. And so don't be shy. I know that some of you, uh, you know, they're, you're new and just say hi. Um, welcome to the family and welcome to the community. And uh, you can always find us if you want to subscribe or if you want to participate at patreon.com slash mission log. Look for all of the entry level uh, offerings that we have there. Find the one that suits you best and then be part of our community. All right, Norman. Wow. Uh, right from the top. Now, you, you know, we, we had a little fun with it there with uh, Cisco expressing his moral outrage. But um, there is a great line in there. And it's something that has come up pretty recently as well. Uh, when Cisco is confronted with this idea about what Section 31 is doing, genocide done by people who call themselves Federation citizens. Okay, good. Good. First of all, good. I'm glad we have Cisco calling it like it is. And I'm glad he's morally repulsed at the idea as he should be. Now, I I, I feel like we did it. We, we had our fun. I'm not really going to take Cisco to task here for his own ethical shortcomings because, well, we've 
done that not too long ago, <laughs> like mere minutes ago. Mm-hmm. But what I am going to do here, uh, because that line stuck out to me, is just remind everyone that we had this conversation back in Iborg. And I, I mentioned it again relatively recently on this show, and it bears repeating that there is never a moral justification for genocide. Picard wouldn't do it. Cisco can't imagine it. And here we are with an organization within the Federation, adjunct to Starfleet, that just has that as part of the plan. And I, I'm sorry, but as hard as it is to win the war, as bad as your options may sound, still isn't a justification for genocide. Mm-hmm. And this, dear friends, and I'm, I'm saying that while looking at Norman, but thinking about everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, that's why I've grown weary to the point of hatred for Section 31. And this is where I think DS9 dropped the ball with them. For every step of the way, we've been teased with who they are and how far their power actually extends. And we're supposed to be opposed to them. But every step, we've been told that they're just a part of how it all works. It's just baked into the system. And my, oh, my, do they have resources. It undermines everything. And we should all be absolutely horrified. Mm -hmm. I, I really like uh, uh, Bashir's line, and, and I wrote this one down. This thing that has slithered its way into the heart of, of the Federation must be destroyed. And can I just say, you are damn right, Julian, and we should all be agreeing with you instead of shrugging our shoulders and saying, eh, that's the way it is sometimes. This is always going to be a sticking point for me, Norman, mm-hmm. you know, for, for all the things that I have truly loved about DS9, and I think they get absolutely right in terms of technique and character writing. There is something about this that will always stick in my craw because it was an interesting problem to deal with, but it became a much bigger problem by making it all pervasive and over such a long period of time, too. And and I was having the same conversation with a friend about how insidious and kind of like how behind the scenes Section 31 has been since the formation of the Federation Charter, you know, Article This, Section 31. We all know the history of it, and and we all have our, our varying opinions on it. But think about it this way. In Mirror Mirror, when... When Captain Kirk was trying to negotiate dilithium trade with the Hulkins, and the Hulkin mm-hmm. and the Hulkin leader said, "You have the might to take them from us," and then Kirk says, "But we won't consider that. Consider that," he said, "We won't use might." Mm-hmm. If if diplomatic relationships broke down with the Hulkins and the, and the Enterprise left, what Section Thirty One comes in and makes sure that negotiations continue? Is that what we're talking right. about? Right, right. Now right. extrapolate that over every single time where diplomatic relations didn't work in the Federation's favor. The Federation leaves, goes off to their next mission, or I should say the Enterprise, or whatever ship. Then Section 31 slides themselves in there and said, this is what's going to happen if diplomatic relations don't work. How are your kids, Minister? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. he said that to his there own people. He just said that to Miles. Mm-hmm. Like, how are the kids, Miles? How's Keiko? Mm-hmm. Is this what we're dealing with here? So there's that insidiousness uh, very easily uh, accepted by the audience who appreciates this storyline 
of Section 31. I don't, but there are people out there in the Deep Space Nine audience community that does. But my bigger problem with Section 31 in this episode, and especially where it comes with uh, to Miles and Julian, like, are they punching above their own weight when it comes to this almost um, this over ambitious plot to actually try and capture an agent of an agency that has been invisible for 300 years? I know. It's almost comedic, right? Yeah. Because here are Julian and Miles in a nutshell. And I'm not insulting the fans who love these two, but let's look at them on paper. Mm -hmm. Julian is a privileged doctor Mm -hmm. who has designs of being a spy, but just in his daydreams. Miles is just, he's kind of a a blue collar, roll up his sleeves, kind of like nine to five kind of guy. You know, he wants, he's exhausted. He has problems with his wife. He loves his family. And that's about it. That's the extent of his ambition. Yeah. These two gentlemen, we are supposed to believe, are smart enough to create a plan to capture (laughs) one of Section 31's finest agents whose job, whose life, whose entire existence is to remain invisible until seen. This is what we're supposed to believe in this episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a major problem with it. And, you know, I joked about it when they cooked up this plan that I was looking forward to seeing how this actually plays out. And to be very honest, the, this was a plot detail that I did not remember. Uh, so this was the, the reveal here was new to me. And it, it sort of... It's sort of the problem with how uh, uh, Section 31 has been designed on paper for DS9. We've only met Sloan, Mm -hmm. and we've only had lip service given to exactly what he does and what how big the organization is. And okay, so they had a man in the um, in the president's cabinet. That was a reveal in this episode, uh, which I don't like uh, at all uh he was obviously able to manipulate uh admiral ross so yes their their reach is far and wide but we've only ever literally just met this one person and this one person has been five steps ahead of everybody else at all times Mm -hmm. so it does seem like a completely impossible task and i guess the only part of it the only part of it that we can possibly believe is just all right, he shows up in the same place. Why didn't Bashir already have a containment field there anyway? I mean, like, literally, the first time that happens, a containment field is going in place. Right. Uh, pressure sensor on the on the cushion, in, you know, on the chair. Yeah. Um, there you go. I think, Done. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, John, as much as it's hard to believe that, that Julian and Miles can actually successfully pull off a plan like this, like Cisco's like, what happens if it does work? Or what happens you know, if you actually catch him? What then? But what's even more baffling and probably even harder to swallow is that Sloan did get captured. I know, right? Like, come yeah. on. I'm like, really? I know. He doesn't have a way out of – he doesn't actually see every possible avenue of why this is happening. Yeah. That, to me, is just – ridiculous because he he's the guy he's the black bag right he's the operator he's he the he's the man between the shadows that you don't catch and all of a sudden hey bashir's got the cure all of a sudden <laughs> the one that he just asked requisitions for to try and get the secret to what a couple mm. weeks ago and now he That's has it suspicious mm, sure yeah. i'll buy that 
Really? There is something <laughs> there is something here that I do like about uh, Bashir's logic, and it, it is a good scene for people to kind of consider. If they ever want to go down that rabbit hole about conspiracy theories, I love Bashir's explanation of the problem with conspiracies. In the end, I came up with at least... 73 people uh, and uh, miles says like oh i'm surprised it wasn't 7300 or whatever and yes that is exactly why conspiracies rarely ever work if they even exist and why the ones that do occur are usually so easy to expose because you get literally more than two people working on anything and it is bound to explode in their faces, and uh, the, the details are too easy to follow. Here's a question. So. I didn't put it down on my nose, but mm-hmm. when you're talking about this, just in terms of statistical probabilities, it brings up the fact mm-hmm. that why doesn't Julian ask the Jack Pack to help him work on the cure? Oh, my God. Of course. Right? Of course. That's they four totally. genius-level scientists. Yeah. You know, or, See, or, that or, been or a good genius-level intellects. Um, yes, it's sad that in the end he didn't just come up with 47 people because that's an opportunity. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Missed opportunity mm-hmm. there. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I'm going to say this. That, that, and, you know, this is an interesting episode because we're, we're sort of skipping around a little bit. And this part of our podcast isn't usually the part where we talk about production technique or storytelling devices, but I kind of feel like I have to with this one because it is such a major part of the episode. The whole thing hinges on us buying the premise, first of all, and then partly on us buying the twist at the end of Act 4. I did not buy that for a second. And I wonder if that's because of movies like The Matrix and Inception, because it all has to do with the individual mind's perception. And I just kept thinking that they had to have a scene where they think they're in the real world again, but they aren't. Like, that was just obligatory for the script. Um, American Werewolf in London did it best, by the way. uh, Yeah. uh, Bingo. Yes, 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 yes. Now... The other problem here is I just keep playing the home version in my head, and I had a lot of trouble suspending disbelief. Because we spend an awful lot of time setting up the idea that memories are just streets or corridors or file drawers rather than constructs of the mind literally every time a memory is recalled. So I understand that there is a money-saving concern here for the budget, but maybe I would have even had an easier time if we're just at Starfleet Medical, <laughs> if we are back in that memory with Odo, you know, uh, oh, oh, what happened when he got this? And how do we keep rewinding that scene and go to the place where where this was come up? But um, yeah, that that was actually I don't know if you had the same issue, too, where you're just thinking like, oh, yeah, well, they're they're not in the real world. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a trope that gets played out uh fairly, you know, regularly in these types of narratives. I really liked your idea. Thank you, John, for putting on your writer hat of having Odo involved because the scene of the crime is when Odo was at Starfleet Medical. Mm-hmm. And Sloan could have been there with the uh, both with the uh, with the plague and the cure at the same time, you know, in that room full of people, a la X-Files, you know, you'll have, you know, somebody on in the corner smoking a cigarette, you know, if obviously because you have to have that guy, you have like a room full of people in suits looking down at Odo getting the, the disease mm-hmm. and Sloan off to the side saying like, okay, I'm the only one that has 
both the disease and the cure committed to memory. So in case we get captured, I can suicide mm-hmm. myself and we can still kill the founders. That still all works. And then you have Renee involved too in the story. So yeah. yeah. And you're still in the bottled episode. The, the problem that I still have with this episode, again, it asks too many big asks to the audience and there mm-hmm. are no mm-hmm. real earned payoffs because this is literally a 10 minute story in a 50 yeah. minute episode. Yeah. And that's what happens when you extrapolate a very short, very tight story that can be told very economically and then turn it into The Hobbit. Right? <laughs> right. Right. You have to fill exactly. all of this time with all of these different threads that generally will turn into issues because mm-hmm. you don't need that kind of time to tell this kind of a story. It would have been better off if they took three consecutive bottle stories and intercut between the three of them. Kira and Garrick going off meeting Damar, then Julian mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and uh, O'Brien doing the thing with Sloan, and then maybe mm-hmm. even Cisco wrestling with the whole, how do I get everyone back on track because we're still trying to win a war? <laughs> right? right, right, right. Because it was nice seeing him in this episode, but like, oh, hi, Benjamin. Like, you know, all of a sudden he's there. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I, do you have any thoughts about the uh, the bromance as we? Uh... Yeah, I do like that though. I do like that. I don't really yeah. think it needs to be explicitly done again in a fifty minute episode. You know, spending mm-hmm. time, a lot of time on that. But there is something to be said about the 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 forging of relationships in times of war and in times of of stress. Uh, and uh, I think that it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual in nature. It doesn't necessarily mm. ha- have to have to transcend that. There is an unwritten relationship between men of a friendship that transcends the word, you know, transcends mm-hmm. friendship, transcends relationship, transcends love, transcends all of these different labels that you want to put on something that's just an unspeakable bond of or band of brothers. Um, And I think that that's where Julian and and Miles are. And I don't think that they needed to have that scene where they're talking about, well, yes, my wife loves me. I'm going to secure my manhood in front of everyone else. And then, well, I'm in love with Esri, who I've just known for maybe a couple months. And that secures my manhood. Who cares? You guys, you don't have to express it. And I love you, man. You guys are brothers forever. And you love each other as brothers forever. That's all that needs to be unsaid, not said. If the Jack Pack went around thwarting Section 31's plans, would that make them the Sloan gunmen? That was some extreme (laughs) conversation, John. Extreme conversation. (laughs) That's that's what we do. Extreme mission logging. Extreme mission logging for extreme measures for this extreme conversation. But I think that we brought up some really interesting points. And as we do it here in Mission Log, we always come to the end taking a look at does this episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And then finally, we take a look at the morals and meanings and messages of the episode, if any, if we can find any, or (laughs) if they speak to us in any certain way. So uh, I'd like to start with you, John. I'd like to bring you in here. And let's see how this episode, if it did, held up for you. Well, I think we're going to hit on some familiar themes that we've already discussed in our uh, talk today. My biggest question about this episode is why. it, It just feels like it's purely functional and literally the longest possible route to go the shortest distance. I mean, literally all we need is... 
get the information from Section 31. But we literally just burned an hour doing that. And I was, honestly, I was so shocked the first time around watching this episode that there was no B-plot. I had to make sure that I didn't miss something the second time around. <laughs> like, when, I, when I, I, I finished it, I watched it, and I was like, okay, now, you know, a day later, a day or two later, I'll watch it again. Did I miss something? <laughs> because I don't recall there being a B-plot to really talk about, oh, no, 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 it was all that. And that just seems like such a poor use of time here. And the problem, well, there are a few problems, but, but there is a very fine line with science fiction stories where... I feel like we want the fantastical, but we also want the believable. And Star Trek generally does an incredible job of creating a fictional universe, but it feels real, like all the technological progress is just a given, and then you and I as audience members can be very at ease there. So the biggest sin, or maybe one of the biggest sins of the episode, is that this does what bad science fiction does. It has to go to such great lengths to explain the technology that we have to swallow that it ultimately takes me out of the story. It just feels like manufactured drama and that ultimately becomes very boring. And now the other sin committed here is telling or yeah, telling instead of showing. We know that Bashir and the chief are best buds. We know it's a bromance. You actually don't need to have them sit there and talk about it and telegraph it to the audience because they've already earned all of that. And I, I, I'm sorry, but uh, Sloan is either aware and helpful or he isn't, but he's a fully realized person. I, I, I don't know. I, I will say at the very least they gave him maybe some redeeming quality by having people around who liked him. But even then, I just want to go to his wife in the real world and say, do you know how awful he is? <laughs> so if this story, if this episode had actually been the end of Section 31, I might have been fine with that if we hadn't already baked it into all of Star Trek retroactively. I, I just, I look at this and I go, we were on such a good streak after a number of disappointing episodes in season seven. This was a gigantic bump in the road that should have never happened. There is so much of this bit of resolved more quickly and elsewhere and not waste time on this. Uh, mm -hmm. So no, it, it, does not hold up in any way, shape, or form that I can think of. How about you, Norman? I was on such a tear in the last uh, segment that I can't believe that I actually stole like most of my notes in this segment <laughs> talking about how I felt. <laughs> okay, you know because I, I agree, John. This the final arc. This, you've you've heard us talk about how we felt about the episode started with pr from Penumbra to now, mm -hmm. and every single episode are you know our analysis of the episode has been uh, positive and even more positive and even just we've fallen in love with certain episodes we can't mm -hmm. believe like how good certain episodes really were how we're marching towards the end how we're reaching this climax this apex of storytelling with literally like less than four hours of storytelling left and mm -hmm. this episode happens yeah right the yeah. final arc was going so well and this episode grinds it all to a very 
perplexing screeching halt, and I don't know why. Yeah, I, it's like it's as if the writers were they just ran out of steam at the end. Yeah. You know, you hit that wall in a marathon, and you're you're literally like a hundred yards away. One last push to the end, and mm-hmm. you can't move your legs. You can see the end. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel, literally in this episode. And when you take a look at everything that happened in this episode, none of it mattered. None of it. Mm-hmm. Except for Odo's cure, which can be told in 10 minutes. Yeah. So why? You know, yeah. when you have this little left to tell all of this story, wrapping up the, the prophets, wrapping up the paw wraiths, wrapping up Cisco, wrapping up the Dominion War in less than three hours, and you're going to serve the audience this? Like, I don't get it. I just like, it's like someone lost a bet and said, <laughs> no, nope, you got to write, you got to write the bromance story for O'Brien and, and Bashir. And you know what? I mean, uh, if you guys get angry, send all the emails my way. You know why? Because I want them. Yeah. I want the criticisms that you think that we're, that we're being unfair about, about this episode. Cause you know why, you know, I think I'm right. I just don't understand this episode at all. Uh, I do love William Sadler in this episode. Could care less about they tried to humanize Sloane. Sloane's the bad guy. Mm-hmm. He represents everything bad in inside of Starfleet. You know, not yeah. just Starfleet, but throughout pervasively throughout Starfleet. I just don't know why they did it. I don't. Look, I, I will say this because, you know, th- this is the part of our show where we, you know, th- this question about does it hold up gets to be treated kind of however we want to from week to week. And uh, this is a place where I, I think talking about the production itself, the behind the scenes helps. And you go, oh, okay, there are story elements that got divided up among different episodes and you have the reality of the budget in their faces. So we have to excise a bunch of other ideas and really boil it down to something more and more simple, make it a bottle show. But here's the thing, and and here's why I can confidently say that it doesn't hold up as a production. Because the strength of DS9 from the very beginning has been about character, character, character. And some of the best moments of this entire series have been when you've got two people in a room talking, but the talking matters and what it reveals about the characters matters and where it puts them on a trajectory for the next piece of you know plot to be unfolded actually matters. And some of the best i you know you've heard me say a million times that i think duet is is such a brilliant and beautifully written episode and it's mostly two people in a room talking so it's hard for me to give them a lot of leeway here and say oh okay you had all this build up you have all these places to go with the series but then you run out of budget so you have to just have two people in your existing sets talking and doing stuff well Mm -hmm. You've already shown me that you can do that brilliantly in other circumstances. But in this case, the production falls apart. And it's too bad because there were so many other interesting things to be explored here, particularly as we have, you know, as we're running down the clock to the very end of the series. I mean, obviously, the cure is important. Obviously, getting Odo Mm -hmm. cured is, you know, one of the most important thing, if not the most important thing in this episode. So if you take like the highest narrative points in this episode and put them all, you know, on on paper, you know, Sloan revealing the cure, Odo Mm -hmm. being cured, 
Miles and Julian having that one last hurrah with each other inside this fantasy that they mm-hmm. enjoy having, you know, together. How much of that that's left of this story actually matters if you just completely erase it from the history of the series? Yeah. None of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, again, because it. It, because what you're describing is just the plot points. It's just literally, like like I said, it, it's the mechanics of getting from point A to point B. Got to get the cure for Odo. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other ways to do that, you yeah. know? And and this just, uh, it, it was a huge misfire. And that, dear friends, brings us to the morals, <laughs> meanings, messages. And look, I, I don't have a lot to say here because, you know, my, my question to myself was, is there one a, at all? And, and I will, you know, there are some good lines here. There are some good moments here, but that's all they are. And I, in the moment that we have with, good Sloan, <laughs> you know, he, he has a line that I think is terrific. Uh, ideology is a poor substitute for kindness and decency. Uh, and that at the very end of the day, it's our actions and not our beliefs that define who we are. That is a great line. That is, that is so well stated and so well said. It has so much less meaning to me because it comes from somebody who is terrible. I, I haven't grown to a point where I can say like, oh yeah, wow, I really do see the good in Sloan. Wow, I really, yeah. I hope he has this turnaround here as he lays dying on an examination table over the next 20 minutes. Uh, wow, that, that really has some impact. Like, no, it has no impact anymore at that point. I, you know, virtual Sloan's admission to himself or, or to the family members in his head uh, about how he cheated them and himself of a real life by living his in deceit and covering his tracks. I look, I, you know, you got to respect a bit of clarity, but dude, you're supposed to do that when you're alive to the people who care about you. Mm-hmm. If you do it in your mind, when you're laying on an examination table and you haven't really done it, it's just delusion. And and the people who are hearing it are just a construct. So I guess what I'm saying is that the one redeeming thing in here is a lie, and I just talk myself out of a message. <laughs> <laughs> a dazzling display of circular logic. John. Okay, maybe the message dazzling. is don't be Sloan. Don't don't be that guy. Okay, but but you, you save it for us, man. Save it. Does the ends justify the means? I think it's a big... Uh, I think it's a big moral that I took away from it. It's a very, it's it's heavy. It's 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 fairly large. It blankets a lot of kind of like what's going on here from for me and from from what I took away. Um, let's go back to the line that you mentioned earlier at the very beginning of the show when Cisco said, "Genocide committed by people who call themselves Federation citizens." Cisco said this to Bashir. Let's take this one step further and more specifically, genocide committed by people who are Starfleet officers. Not just Federation mm-hmm. citizens, but Starfleet as a as Section 31 is part of the Starfleet Charter. We've heard this uh, ad infinitum, ad nauseum throughout the course of uh, the introduction of Section 31 since, uh, oh gosh, I keep forgetting the name of the episode, not Insurrection, um, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right before yeah. In the Pale Moonlight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a while back. Um, yeah. yeah, so we know where Section 31 comes from. And we know that 
they are synonymous with these clandestine organizations that live in the shadows. Okay, so they have extreme interrogation. You have torture. You have waterboarding. You have drug-induced coercion. These are trademarks of modern clandestine organizations of today in the 21st century. So how is what Julian and um, O'Brien are doing to Sloan any different? I mean, think about what they're really doing. They uh, captured him in a way they're torturing him. They tried to uh, coerce information out of him. And then they used a Frankensteinish type of technology to go inside his brain because they are so hell-bent on trying to get this information out of him that they are literally like breaking, I'll know, every single possible moral code of conduct that a physician is supposed to be able to defend, mm-hmm. do no harm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So how is what Julian and O'Brien doing to Sloan any different, especially squeezing information from what little brain life Sloan clings onto? Is this what Odo would have wanted? Mm. Is this what Kira would have wanted, who wants so desperately for Odo to live? Odo trusts that Julian is searching for the cure. Kira looked at Julian before she left and just said, Julian? And he said, I'm working on it. So she left knowing that she's trusting him to find the cure. But at what cost? And what is truly at stake here? Sacrificing one's personal honor and morality for the sake of friendship? I think is what is being at least tabled, you know, to talk about here. Julian and Miles are risking a lot to save their friend, but at what cost? Let's take a look at something that's not nearly as heavy. Let's take a look at, well, maybe it is. Mm. Kirk risked everything to save Spock, Mm. say in a mock time where he said that Spock has, you know, uh, he has saved my life, you know, 10 times over. Isn't that worth a career? Obviously, in the search for Spock and what happened after the Wrath of Khan, Kurt said, you know what? I, have, I, I will sacrifice everything to save my friend and get him back sure. you know, to, to Vulcan so that at least I can give him some peace after his death. Is this on that same level? Are we seeing that type of storytelling being stole here, but just not nearly as well? Hmm. But I'm going to pivot to one last point here. As a fan of what I believe Starfleet is supposed to represent— It's hard to reconcile that the future is supposed to be a better version of humanity, but that right now it's no different 200 years from now than where we are today. Isn't that antithetical to Star Trek's most basic philosophical DNA? The reason why I find this episode to be so uninspired, because it's literally just a convenient trapdoor to invent drama that allows Star Trek's message to be subverted for the sake of of unnecessary controversy. Peach on, man. All right. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Dogs of War. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. It's good to know that Section 31 will never retaliate. It's not that they've run out of resources, they're just running out of episodes.
and transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.